Hey guys, welcome to That Florida Feeling. How is everybody this week? I hope it's been good. I know it's been hot. Uh, it's like I really wanted summer to come and now I really don't want it because it's hot. Anyways, thanks to everybody who has interacted with the Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok pages. As always, you guys are awesome. Thanks to anybody who has reviewed. Thank you to S on Spotify. You have left some really nice comments on uh, the interaction where I ask how you like the episodes. And thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, I didn't think that anybody would actually interact with that, and you have, and thank you. I am glad to be inclusive and support y'all and support everyone, and I'm glad that everyone is a listener and that you all, you know, take the time to hear me ramble on about Florida. So thank you so much for your kind words. Thanks for participating in the Wednesday polling questions. Uh, As always, love learning about you guys. Most of us are apparently here for grilling, and most of us like to go new places in the summer. I'm glad that we all agree on that one. So today we're going to talk about some of Florida's history. And of course, Florida has a long history and a long history of being a place for refugees, runaways, or people who just want to hide. Florida's kind of cool about that. Um, Florida has also been home to something interesting. Florida has kind of been home to the wet foot, dry foot policy. If you don't know what that is, it was an immigration policy um, in the 1960s. Then it got revised in in like the 1990s. And basically it states that If you make it to land, you have one year where you can immigrate from Cuba or really anywhere in the Caribbean, but mainly towards Cubans. You have one year to immigrate, um, and that's the dry part. If you're caught in the water with the quote-unquote wet feet, then you are sent back. Um, And Florida's kind of been home to that, and I know we've dealt with that for years. Um, We've also had immigration fights. We've also had uh, other migrations to the Sunshine State, and so it's not surprising that it's played a big part in our history um, for for years. And of course, uh, the Seminoles were some of the first refugees to come to Florida by uh, white settlers. We've had, we've dealt with, I remember Elian Gonzalez, that was a huge story in like the early 90s. And then of course in the 80s, we had the Mario Boatlifts, and that really captivated Florida's attention and also kind of created parts of Florida that we still exist, that still exist today. And kind of created uh new parts of miami and so today we're going to talk about the mariel boatlift and if i'm saying that wrong i'm sorry i'm going to call it mariel boatlift if i'm wrong don't yell at your podcast just message me on how to say it and i will make an i will say it on the next podcast correctly so the mariel boatlift was a mass migration of cubans that traveled from mariel harbor to the u.s between april 15th and october 31st in 1980 and the term Marilito uh, refers to refugees in both English and Spanish. And the, the, basically the wave came from Cuba's economy that continued a downward spiral. You had Fidel Castro being Fidel Castro. And really, you just had generations of Cubans wanting to come to America. The Cuban-American relations were a sensitive topic at best in this time. And of course, at the time of the 19, late 1970s, we had Jimmy Carter as our president. He wanted to improve relations with Cuba in the 1970s. I dare say that most presidents have wanted to improve the relations with Cuba that we've had. Now, of course, Jimmy Carter lifted the travel restrictions to Cuba, and both countries established an interest section in each other's capitals, but relations continued to be strained. Um, It still wasn't all fun and games. Uh, Cuba, of course, at this point was still allies with Russia, and their military was still supported by them, which was a touchy topic to the U.S., 
And the countries couldn't, could not quite reach an agreement on the relaxation of U.S. embargo at that time that would allow export of selected list of medicines to Cuba. The U.S. was still very much no on a lot of things. And Congress was really the ones that were standing in the way of these issues. Uh, Carter really, really wanted a better relations with Cuba, and he was pushing for it. But Congress was really kind of like the no uh, in this equation. But 10 members of Congress did go to visit Cuba in the late 1970s, 1978 to be exact, and they did this as a goodwill gesture. The Cubans also released an American businessman who had been prevented from leaving the country a few years earlier. And Cuba even allowed 55 people to return to the country. Um, And it was really rare for Cuba to let people come back to Cuba once they had left. Uh, They did not let Cuban-born immigrants return from the U.S. This was a no-no, and for them to allow these 55 people to return was actually pretty massive. Like, this is a huge step in the direction for our relations. December of 1978, though, brought about a maritime agreement between the countries for the maritime borders and improved working on their communications in the Straits of Florida. November of 1978, um, Castro's government met in Havana with exiled Cubans and actually agreed to grant amnesty to over 3,600 political prisoners and announcing that they would be freed over the course of the next year. Of course, it wasn't a mass exodus yet, but these people would be allowed to leave Cuba. So that meant that things were changing in Cuba. Um, Trips were being offered to allow people to go to Cuba for a week to visit, and these trips started to be offered in January and by May of 1979. Tours were being organized for Americans to participate in the Cuban Festival Arts, which took place in July. Of course, if you wanted to go to Cuba, you could either leave out of Montreal, Tampa, or Mexico City. So relations were definitely improving. Um, In the U.S., though, things were a little different. The U.S. was already dealing with a Haitian immigration issue and migration. um, Because at at that time, a lot of Haitians were trying to come on shore just by rafts and boats and whatever they could. And the Haitians, though, were not granted legal protection because they were economic migrants, not political refugees as they had claimed to be because they thought that they were being persecuted by the Duvalier regime in Haiti, which I will talk about this in another podcast. Um, As I said, U.S. is not stranger to people wanting to come uh, from other countries in the Caribbean. Now, the Cubans were starting to seek asylum in South American countries as their economy on the island worsened, and it really was going to shit. Like, there's no other way to put it. Two Cubans actually sought asylum at the Argentine embassy in March of 1978, but they were turned away, and they were immediately imprisoned in Cuba. They, like, you you do not do this. You're not really allowed to leave. Uh, you, you're, you're a Cuban. You are staying in Cuba. In May of 1979, 13 Cubans sought asylum at the Venezuelan embassy in Havana and did so by crashing their bus through the gate to gain entry to the grounds. Of course, a lot of these embassies were locked unless you had an appointment. And no, they didn't have an appointment. They just decided that they were going to make their own entrance. In January of 1980, large groups of asylum seekers actually took refuge in the Peruvian and Venezuelan embassies. The Venezuelan ambassador was so overwhelmed he called for home. He called home for consultations since they had actually been shot at by the Cuban police. Um, Peru actually stopped allowing refugees into their embassies. And you're probably thinking this is a building. No, this is actually like a compound. Think of like a big area. And the people invading the embassies actually led to a conflict between the Havana embassy and the Cuban government. Um, So all these embassies in Havana 
and the Cuban government, they were not getting along anymore because they keep kept allowing people to seek asylum there, uh, which kind of sort of made them a uh, resident of another country or they were trying to get to be a resident of another country. Um, a group tried to enter again to the Peruvian embassy in the March of 1980, and then on April 1st, a group of, a group of six drove a city bus into the embassy, again, making their own entrance, and the Peruvian government, you know, announced that they would not hand over these six people to the Cuban police. Well, the Cuban police were not happy about that. The Cuban government announced on April 4th that it would be withdrawing security forces from the embassies due to them not handing over the asylum seekers, which meant that they were no longer going to help them keep these people out. You're on your own. You do you. And this led to 2,000 asylum seekers and political prisoners entering the Peruvian embassy by the night of April 5th. And you want to talk about a shit show. Cuban officials announced via loudspeakers that anyone not on the embassy grounds was free to immigrate elsewhere if the country granted them entry. So basically, all the people who were trying to get out of Cuba and went to the Peruvian embassy were now stuck. Um, this is basically just a ha-ha-ha, you can't go. So, the U.S. and other embassies met to discuss the situation. I mean, this was a big issue. People were trying to get into these embassies. They could tell that Cubans wanted out of Cuba. The U.S. State Department stated on April 5th that the country would both grant asylum to political prisoners and handle other requests that allowed for over 400 visas for Cubans with families already in the U.S. to come to the U.S., now, the situation at the Peruvian embassy with those some 2,000 people um, went downhill quickly. Um, other embassies were dealing with the same issue. There were so many people that were, that were in there. There was no food. There was no water. There was no sa there was sanitation issues. I mean, you talk about a literal shit show. This was not good for anybody. So the Cubans began to allow the asylum seekers to go home. They were going to go home, they were going to get their belongings, and they are going to be issued documents that granted their right to immigrate that included safe conduct pass and a passport from Cuba. So basically they're being given their papers and told to get the hell out. On April 11th, 3,000 people received these uh, conduct, safe conduct passes and passports and left the embassy grounds. April 14th was the day that President Jimmy Carter realized that something was going to happen and he accepted 3,500 refugees into the U.S., the Cuban government allowed people to leave, but they were violent towards the refugees. They were not nice. They, they wanted them to leave, but they wanted them to know that they were not happy that they were leaving. Mobs formed, and they would beat these people. They would make them walk around with signs around their necks, calling them trash, or sometimes even worse. The Cuban government also gave special immigration status to the undesirables in the country, such as homosexuals and criminals. Um, they wanted them to leave. They actually just wanted to send their undesirables to other places. And a lot of Cubans began to claim that they were homosexual just to get permission to leave the country. Cuba was in that bad of shape. Now, the U.S. was already in negotiations with the Haitian refugees that I told you were already coming to the U.S. And then the Cubans started to flood the country. Cubans came by airlift. They went to Costa Rica for processing. And most of them, though, actually came out of the Port of Mariel via boat. The Puerto Mario was opened on, by Castro on April 20th and allowed anyone who wished to leave could if they had a way to leave. And you better believe these people started making their own way. Cuban Americans began to make arrangements to get their people from Cuba to the U.S. so that their family members could join them. April 21st was the first boat to leave the harbor and went straight to Key West. There were 48 refugees on board this one boat. That was on April 21st. April 25th, there were more than 300 boats picking up people from the Mariel Harbor and bringing them to the U.S. 
Cuba was sending these people over on overly crowded fishing boats. People were using rafts. They were using dinghies. They were using whatever they can to make that 80-mile trip from, the U- from Cuba to the U.S. And I mean thousands of refugees, thousands upon thousands, started to arrive in Florida. And Florida Governor Bob Graham had to declare a state of emergency in Monroe and Dade counties as these people were landing in the Keys in Miami, and he did so on April 28th. The Coast Guard estimated around 16,000 refugees had arrived in Florida by early May, and they were still going to be coming. Jimmy Carter had agreed to 3,500, not 16,000, so he had to declare a state of emergency on May 6th as the areas of Florida that were severely impacted by the exodus from Cuba. The refugees also had open arms policy extended to them, uh, which means that they were allowed to seek asylum and um, try to get try to immigrate and become U.S. citizens within a year. The policy was also extended to Haitians as the Haitians were now fighting against the Cubans and didn't understand why they couldn't try to get immigrated within a year. Um, So you had over 16,000 Cubans. You had over 25,000 Haitians. You had just nightmare of a time in Miami right now. South Florida is a nightmare. Um, Carter eventually had to call for a blockade on the flotillas and boats by the Coast Guard. 1,400 boats were seized, but a lot slipped past the blockade as more than another 100,000 Cubans and Haitians flooded into Florida over the next few months. The Mariel boat lift ended in October of 1980 after Cuba and U.S. reached an agreement about these these, uh, flotillas, these boats, everything that was coming. They knew that they had to do something. So what are they going to do with all these refugees? Well, the refugees were processed, their papers were shown, and camps were set up in the greater Miami area. And the camps were actually usually at decommissioned missile defense sites. The Miami Orange Bowl was another site. Various churches stepped forward and gave places to the refugees. The refugees were processed, documented, and then taken to the metropolitan areas to be re- reunited with families if they had some that were already in the United States. So, I mean, you're talking about a mass amount of people. The Red Cross stepped in to help as well as other organizations. Um, regional resettlement sites were crucial in this point, especially to the social and cultural status, and of course, desirability of many of the refugees from the Mariel boat lifts. Um, Miami was not a good place at this point, um, as the refugees were flooding into town. This is also the same time as the McDuffie riots. Um, the McDuffie riots were happening in Liberty City and Overtown, uh, in Miami. I did a whole episode on McDuffie, uh, basically the cops killed a black guy and said that it was his fault. It was proven to be the cop's fault. And during this time, uh, this is when the riots were happening. So parts of Miami were already not safe for anybody. And now you're adding refugees to the mix. The riots were said to be made worse by the strain that was placed on the police as they were trying to take care of the refugees and the riots. Uh, the anger perceived at the give okay so people in liberty city overtown and parts of miami were already mad about the riots but now they're mad because they were they thought that these refugees were given certain rights or they were perceived rights um and they didn't think that those rights that were given to the cuban refugees were the same as those given to african americans already in miami or the haitian refugees coming over they thought that the cuban refugees were already being treated better The McDuffie riots were only a few days in Miami, but it did not help the situation. It also made things worse as they were still trying to find places for all these refugees. 
The crowded conditions of the refugees meant that they were sent to places outside of Florida for processing. A lot of the refugees were normal Cubans who really just wanted to escape the economy and live a better life. Um, I did not realize this for some reason. I, for some reason, thought that Cuban most Cubans were Catholic. But apparently a lot of the refugees were Seventh-day Adventists or Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, which meant a lot of them did actually leave Florida and go to other places. Um, now, of course, in these refugees, Cuba had really wanted to get rid of their undesirables, such as their criminals and homosexuals. But in the end, only 2.2% of these thousands of people that came were thought to be serious or violent criminals. By 1984, uh, most of them had gained permanent legal status in the U.S. 1987 was another year that some got their status. I mean, it's kind of like a staggered step. But also, more had been detained because they were deemed to be not able to attain status due to their criminal past, or they had become criminals once they had gotten into the state, so they were not going to be granted rights as a legal citizen. The local police had been arresting many of the refugees over the years since they came to Florida, and over 7,000 had committed felonies, which meant that most of them were in prison, which means now that the prisons were more overcrowded in South Florida and other parts of the U.S., they also started to face deportation. The U.S.-Cuba Migration Agreement of 1987 allowed for 3,000 political prisoners to immigrate to the U.S., and we were able to give back any undesirables and criminals that had come to the state, so we swapped. The Marilitos were not happy when they heard they were being deported, and of course this caused riots. The main riots were in Oakdale and Atlanta. Uh, both, of those are in, uh, both of those were actually in prisons in those uh, cities. And these riots in these prisons were pretty bad. Hostages were taken, and they only ended the riots when they were told that they would be get a fair deportation case before just being sent back to Cuba. A lot of them did not want to go back. Now, the U.S. did continue to deport those who were undesirable. And, of course, this is still kind of an ongoing thing. The U.S. came to another agreement in 2016, so only seven years ago, that only serious criminals who were still in the U.S. would be sent back. So they're still sending people back who committed crimes that long ago, and they are still sending them back to Cuba at this point. Now, of course, these people coming into Florida created a whole new face on Florida. I mean, they created new areas, new, just really had the ability to change parts of Miami. And of course, as they did, Miami formed East Little Havana, um, and they actually formed a task force in response to the refugees. The task force studied the effect the boatlift had on Little Havana. Of course, we now have Little Havana. And Little Havana grew. Um, because Little Havana was kind of the epicenter for the migration of the refugees. Because, of course, that's where most of these people's families had already established themselves. And the effect the refugees had on the area, both socially, economic, and criminal, was the response this task force was studying. 1,300 refugees with questionable backgrounds would go on to commit minor crimes, such as drugs or black market offenses. Um, they do think that 2,700 of the refugees in Little Havana were hardened criminals. Um, 1985, a report came out that 35, 35, 350 to 400 Mario Cubans were in the Dade County Jail each day. You've also got to remember that this is the 1980s. Um, the drug wars are going on. So you've already you've had immigration between Cuba and, and Haiti. You've had the riots. You still have uh, racial problems, and now you have the drug wars going on, uh, coming up from South America. So this is really, really bad time for South Florida. A lot of the refugees went to other parts of the U.S. when they were processed, but over half of them did stay in Miami, which means that Little Havana did grow. 
The refugees did actually help the labor workforce, and it actually helped to stabilize the Miami economy. The refugees also brought changes to the school system as they needed more room for the children, so schools did grow and reform, and things actually got better in that sense. The Mariel boat lift was seen as Carter's failure when Castro announced he was sending the Cuban undesirables to the U.S. That kind of pissed people off in the U.S. The people in the U.S. believed that it was thought to be the mentally ill, hardened criminal, and political prisoners who were going to flood the shores of Florida. It wasn't. It was just a lot of regular people who just wanted a better life. The Mariel boat lift has still been seen as a point of contention in all politics and can be used to point out the dangers of unchecked immigration. In fact, Trump, back in early, no, not early, uh, late 20, the teens, late 20 teens, so um, his one four-year thing, he actually used the Mariel boat lift as a reason that, you know, you need to check, you need to do your due diligence of unchecked immigration. That was part of his... Um, I guess, argument for it. Um, now, the initial poll of Americans when it happened was... Fa- lot, nope, they didn't like it. They didn't like that these immigrations were happening. They didn't like the, that the Cubans were coming over and flooding Miami. They didn't like that the Haitians were coming over and flooding Miami. And they didn't like Carter's response to it. Now, the Cubans, though, definitely helped shape Miami. And they've made their place in Florida as well as in pop culture. Uh, Scarface is actually based on a Merlito who made it from Cuba and rose to become a drug lord. Everybody's got their dreams, you know. The Perez family novel is based on a Cuban refugee family. 90 Miles was a documentary by one of the Cuban refugees that shows the journey they went on to escape Cuba to become to the U.S. to just have a better life. I don't know if the Bar- Mariel Boatlift was a failure, but I do think that it definitely added to the face of Miami and the face of Florida. Um, Little Havana is an amazing part of Miami. It's full of culture. It's amazing food. And I met some really nice people the last time I was there. I think that it really just changed Florida into what we know of it today. Um, You know, I think that everything could have been handled better. But, you know, the U.S. was founded on the fact that people were supposed to come here and make themselves better and have a better life. So I think that in the true spirit of the U.S., the Miral Belt Lift was not a bad thing. Um... We're not going to talk about a Florida man today because I feel like there's just way too many to choose from in regards to this topic. I hope that you all enjoyed listening to a part of Florida's history, especially one that's helped shape Florida even through this day. Um, Don't forget to check out the social media sites for the podcast. Invite your friends to like and listen. Don't forget to review. If you haven't, please, please review. It just helps get the podcast out to other people. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I really appreciate you guys. Don't forget to wear your sunscreen, drink your water, and as always, guys... That's your daily dose of sunshine.